Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Tuesday, so... As I say, since it's the summer, I have a little more time. I'm going to have a line to do the Yardside podcast today in memory of Zech Nishmas Ba'ayyalei Ben Dabadev Halevi. Ba'ayyalei Ben Dabadev Halevi. I saw that it's Rebitzel Petterberger, so that's an easy one to do uh, this week. And they're, very, they're always very interesting stories. Each one is a completely different personality, as you have imagined. For those of you who have no, no idea what I'm talking about, if you're yeshiva, you probably heard of Itzla Petterberger, who was the number two mentor of Israel Salanter. You've heard of, I bet you've heard of something called the Musser Movement, which is uh, like a made-up thing, <laughs> you know? It's no movement. But nevertheless, we've all heard of that term, and Itzla Petterberger is like a major figure, the major figure, possibly, in what they call the Musser Movement. So here we're talking about... Uh, Lithuania mainly, Russia in the 1800s. Uh, Ritzik Blazer, that's the name of the family. You know, in Eastern Europe, they give you names, all kind. Uh, I mean, who knows how they got these last names? Blazer, somebody blows, you know, like a glass blower or something like that. Uh, but anyway, uh, this is a famous rabbi, they always are, uh, who lived in uh, Russia and Lithuania for about 70 years, 1837 to 1907. He lived 70 years, look at that. Uh, in, and I'll tell you what's unusual, because that's what we're always interested in. A lot of these people lived the same kind of lives, except the areas that they were unique in. So Yitzhak Blazer was born, I think, in Vilna, Kovna, and um, right in the middle of Lithuania, in 1837. So keep, pay attention to the years. So that means in 1837, so he became a young man in 1850, early 50s. And um, he came, I think he was born in Vilna, if I remember correctly, and then he came to Covenant to learn uh, as a young man. Came from a business family, and all of his life had a business sense. It was always interesting to me, these rabbis, some of them have no sense whatsoever in business and mealy dalma, and, and some are built differently, or family experience leads them to a different direction. And uh, when he came to Vilna, so, I'm sorry, to Kovna, that's when Israel Salanter was there, and they hooked up together. Uh, in the 1850s, when he showed up, well, just to put a spin on this, in 1857, Israel Salanter ran away from Russia and spent most of the rest of his life in Germany. So, if we're talking about somebody born in 1837, that means we're somebody who, in the teen years, right? In the teen years, up to the age of 20, Interacted with the famous Rabbi Shmuel Salanter, I've spoken of in another occasion, and Shmuel uh, Salanter, especially by the 1850s, was into this idea of trying to train disciples in what he called Musser. And I don't think it's necessary to regurgitate all that, but uh, basic idea is it's not enough to do learning, but you also have to learn Musser. Well, that's the wrong word—not learn Musser, but you have to be Musserized. Uh, and he assembled around him a number of disciples meaning students that he was close with. And uh, these are the people who became, you know, known as the big students of Rizal Salanter who kind of tried to spread his ideas, which is why you and I know about him today. Because Rizal Salanter didn't hardly wrote anything, and although he made a big impression when he was alive, since he left no written legacy, so the only reason he's famous that you've even heard the name is because his students, like, spread the word about him almost in a Hasidic style. So let me be very uh, plain English over here. Here's a young guy from Vilna who comes to Kovna at the age of, uh, you know, 13, 14, 15, something like that, and is looking for yeshiva, and he uh, goes to, I guess, yeshiva-based medrash in a shul where uh, Rabbi Shal Salanter is giving the classes. And so he learns Gemara, you know, like you do today in yeshiva today, with a Gemara class every day or two. But in addition to the Gemara classes, and Rabbi Shal Salanter, of course, was a great gaon, but in addition to the Gemara classes, the Rebbe, Rizal Salanter, is also very much into Musser, but in his way. Rizal Salanter's Musser is mainly distinguished by two aspects, at least in my, the way I would put it. That's all you give away with me, the way I would put it. 
number one, this Benano Havera business, and those you're very careful in human interaction with others, you know, do anything that could possibly hurt anybody else, you go to ridiculous ex- extremes of that nature, uh, and that's called being a good Jew. So it's not like you're careless of somebody else, but it's the exact opposite. That's number one. And after all, m- many people aren't like that. You know, you, you say you learn, you, you live your life, you learn Torah, you, you do your thing. If you happen to step on somebody's toe, so, you know, it happened. But here, you got to be extra careful never to walk with anybody or never cause anybody any trouble and you'll have to think twice and three times about it. Uh, that's one side. And the other one is what they call Musr Behispilus, which means the Rishul Salanter came up with this idea that you don't just read a book like Misil's Yisharim, but you have to scream and, uh, you know, try to bang it into your head every line and say it over and over a thousand times and, uh, you know, shake your head, uh, you know, like you see some people in Shul and, uh, you know, twist and turn to try to get, what does it mean? That every word you find in the Musa books, like the Mesil's Yisharim and the Shari Tshuva, you try to really, you know, implant very heavily in your brain. So it's the opposite of just reading like you and I read a book. It's not even like somebody learns a text like a Gemara or a Tosis, uh, unless you're one of these people that just says the words over and over and over again, try to bang it into your head. So those are the two particular uh, unique aspects of Shul Salanter, and the student picked it up. And he was very smart, otherwise we wouldn't be talking about him. He had a big brain. And so, here's the interesting part. Uh, he learned with them till I guess, around the age of 20, because Shul Salanter left Russia at, at that time. So, uh, and then he continued to learn while the Rebbe was away, and Rishul Salanter corresponded with his students. By the way, uh, when I say Rishul Salanter left Russia, left Lithuania, it's true, but it means he went from New York to Philly, you know, not, not, not even less, New York to Wilmington. It wasn't that far away where he lived for a long time. Rabbi Salanter, if you know anything about him, I'm sure I spoke about it, uh, moved to Germany, but the part of Germany adjacent to Lithuania. He spent many, many years in Memel and then in Königsberg. These places are very close physically to Lithuania. They're just an entirely different country. So as I said before, imagine Baltimore to Silver Spring. There's something along those lines. So maybe a little farther, but uh, not, not far away at all. But nevertheless, he was in a different Medina, a different country. And the students kept in contact with him through correspondence and things like that. And uh, he's learning away. He got married. I believe he got married at, at 15, which was the usual style in those days. And I think, if I remember correctly, he married a girl, you know, not from a poor family. And therefore, you know, uh, he was able to sit and learn, as the expression goes. And um, let's see now. His, in the classic old-fashioned school... He didn't want to become a rabbi. Why would somebody want to do that? The best thing is, you don't have to worry about Balabatim. Uh, and so even though he was a big Talmud Chacham, but as a Muslimist and somebody wants to be a Tzaddik, what you would do would be to uh, get a job, uh, which would allow you a lot of time to learn. All right? Uh, I know people, like somebody on my trip told me, He's a uh, you know successful business person down south somewhere. He has, a, he has the ability to learn four hours a day. And uh, so if, you, if you're a uh, blazer, you probably learn eight hours a day. And they say he went and he wanted to learn the uh, house painting business, you know, be a painter. Uh, which means you run a business of painting. <laughs> it's like being a roofer. You run a roofing business. Nothing wrong with that, that I just said. It's you run a, a successful business. And that would be his, his uh, way of uh, spending his life. And the time you're not attending to the business, that you put in for learning and Musser and all that kind of business. And so here's somebody that from 20 to 25 is thinking in those modes. And uh, like I say, he's preparing to establish self in a life of business, of, of commerce, along with heavy-duty learning. However, here's the interesting part. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter had a policy that he wanted his students to become rabbonim in cities. I don't mean a rabbi of a little shul. I mean a rabbi of a shtat, a rabbi of a town. Uh, it's very complicated because this is the 1850s and 60s. And as I've mentioned on other occasions, and we'll probably do again, in Russia you had a screwball system in which you had a dual rabbinate. Every community was required by the government to have... Uh, a rabbi who was 
um, Russian educated. That secular education one kind or another. It was actually good enough in Russia to have a high school education because they knew no Rabbanim would have it. And by that I mean a secular education. And so at least you had the equivalent of a high school degree. It could be in German or in Russian. So I wanted to show that you're a more modern guy. This obviously was part of the plan of the Russian government to control the rabbinate, make them bureaucrats, uh, give them a salary, make them uh, dependent on the superiors, and one day they'll uh, order the rabbis to do things against Judaism. At least that was, first of all, that is true, and second of all, that was seen through from day one by the Frum, and they didn't want to have anything to do with those kind of rabbis most of the time, and the result is that in most cities and towns, what you have was somebody who was who was uh, elected by the community had to be, the government required it, to be the rabbi who had some kind of a secular education degree. And 99% of the time, he didn't have to learn to save his life. And then totally separate from that, the community would also, somehow or other, put on the books another guy who got a salary from the community, and he's what's the real rough. But since he has no secular education, officially he couldn't be the rabbi. And so, this is what you had. Like I always say, Yitzhak Khan Inspector was not the Rav of Kovno, officially. He was the, uh, the got paid for salting the meat. I don't think he salted the meat. That's just a way of putting him on the books. And of course, everybody knew, including the Goyim, that he's the real uh, rabbi, what they called a spiritual rabbi. But the uh, other guy, whoever he was, a, was a pharmacist. He was the uh, official acting rabbi under the government rules, which means that he registered all the births and the deaths and the marriages and the divorces and things. He had an important role to play, even though he wasn't really a rough. Okay, now that's the screwball situation in the Russian Empire. So Mr. Salanter was always afraid that these uh, bad rabbis or uh, people like them uh, will gain a hold of the actual rabbinate and then will use it to lead the community off the derech. So to use American terminology today, which I try to do, Rousseau Santa was really afraid to get a Chovevi guy, you know, something like that. That's really what it boils down to. I know it sounds funny, but that, that, I'm trying to give you an idea of his mindset. And therefore, he was always afraid somebody might look orthodox, but then won't be, and will change this, and give in here and there, and that'll make a Chorbid. As a result, he said that whereas in earlier times it was indeed true that the ideal thing to do was avoid the rabbinate and become just a balabas and sit and learn, and But in the modern world, in order to prevent these bad guys from getting rabbinical positions, it's necessary for good guys to get into there, and consequently he tried to get his best disciples, who he held had the brains and the character, that they should abide of official positions, and indeed he was not unsuccessful. A number of his inner circle, you might say, of his students, disciples, came to occupy important rabbinical positions and played a role in Jewish life in Russia in the second half of the 1800s. That's the background that I'm talking about. Now, in the case of Rabitzla Blazer, Yitzhak Blazer, who he saw, number one, is a big learner. Number two, has a head for business. You know, he's thinking in, in practical terms. Uh, number three, married a wife, you know, uh, uh, from the right background, you know, bourgeois background. So he, and uh, he, <laughs> he also was, was a, uh, I mean, it's going to sound funny what I'm saying. He's, he's tall, he wasn't tall, dark, and handsome, but he was tall. He was blonde hair. Do you imagine this? It's a, a Pentaburger with a blonde hair and blue, die, blue eyes and a scraggly beard, which he always kept in his mouth. I had Rebeam like that, you know, always eating the beard. And, uh, and he said like this, I want you to, get, uh, uh, to, to compete and get the job in the capital city of Russia, St. Petersburg. And he got him that position in 1862, which means that the guy was 25 years old. That's pretty young, right? To be rabbi of the Jewish community, the Abbasin of St. Petersburg. But he did that on purpose, and I'll tell you why. Uh, St. Petersburg was in the Russian Empire. It was the capital of Russia under Tsarist Russia. Leningrad was called later on. Now it's back again to St. Petersburg. And it's a pretty city. I've been there, by the way. I was there many, many years ago, and I, that was my honeymoon. But uh, the Jews in Russia were not allowed to live in St. Petersburg. I've mentioned before, but I'll mention again, that 
in the period I'm talking about in the 1800s, the Russian Empire had the largest Jewish community in the world, which had an unbelievable baby boom. The, Jews and the Jewish population of the Russian Empire, listen to what I'm about to tell you, went between 1800 to 1900, went from 1 million to 6 million. That's like Mitzrayim, you know, part of a Yishur to a mode. I'll say it again. The Jewish population of the Russian Empire in the 1800s had a, a baby boom like you, like never was recorded in Jewish history, from a million to six million. Some historians will disagree with me, and they'll say it was a million to five million. I think they're wrong, but even if they're, say, five million, let's say, you know, without getting into the arithmetic debate, uh, that's also gigantic. So you had, uh, by the way, that's one of the causes of the problems that you had in Jewish population in Russia when you have a, a, a huge baby boom that puts a strain on all infrastructure, including the Frumkite infrastructure. But that's for another time. Like, don't have time to go into that now. And so you had an expanding population, but the czarist governments, because they're extremely anti-Semitic, would not permit the Jews of the Russian Empire to move into Russia proper, which doesn't sound doesn't make any sense. But of course, the idea is, I've said this before, that... Russia is a country which historically, over many centuries, would not allow a single Jew in, unless he converted. Not one. But in the late 1700s, the Russian Empire, under Catherine the Great, was conquering territory to move westward, and they took over Poland. The old kingdom of Poland, which means what you call today Poland, and Belarus, and Lithuania, and Latvia, and, 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 and Ukraine. So it's a huge area. And then, they not only got that territory, but they got the several million Jews that are in that territory. At the time of Catherine the Great, it was 750,000 Jews. But like I say, within a short time, it was a million, and then it was six million. So the Russian Empire got a booby prize. They got not only the territory they wanted, but a gigantic Jewish population, and a very Jewish Jewish population, as you kind of know. Now, they really were aghast at this. And the Russian regime, under all the czars, could not make up its mind what to do with the Jews. I mean, they like them to drop dead. Short of that, they like them all to convert. Short of that, what talking do you do? What do you do? And one of the things they were afraid of is if they let the Jews into Russia itself, meaning not only the territories of Poland that they annexed, but the territories of the old Russia that they had before they annexed the Polish territories, if they allowed the Jews into there, within a year or ten years, the Jews will own everything. Like you read now, you know, the Jews own the real estate in, in, in uh, I don't know, New Jersey or whatever. Oh my goodness, if you leave the Jews to get into Russia, they were afraid. They'll own whole Siberia. They'll own Moscow. They'll own Sen uh, the, the, the real estate in, in, in St. Petersburg. They'll run rings around the Russian businessmen. All the stores will be Jewish. All the department stores, all the businesses, oh, yeah, 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 will be their slaves. This is the mentality of the czars of Russia and all the Russian big shots. Right or wrong, that's what they thought. Consequently, they had a law down until 1917 that no Jew is allowed to move into Russia. So it's weird. Weird. You lived in the Russian Empire, but you can only, it's like if you live in America, you can only live in the South. If you live in America, you can only live in New York or New England. But that's the laws over there. In the, uh, on, on the other hand, there always were a few Jews, not many, that since they, made, they were millionaires or they were a special service to the government in one way or another, they had skills, there always were exceptions. That's the way the Zara system worked. That uh, there are all these terrible laws which apply to 99.9% .9 of the Jewish population, but there's always that 0.1, whatever you call it, percent of the population. There's an exceptional a character, the rich, or they're big businessmen, or industrialists, or bankers, or things like that. And for them, special permission, they're allowed to live in Russia proper. Where would these Jews want to go? They want to go to St. Petersburg and Moscow, because those were the two big Russian cities. That's where the economy was, that's where the money was to be made. And therefore you had, as I said before, if you're at the time of Israel Salanter and Israel Blazer, you had a very unusual Jewish community in St. Petersburg because really no Jews allowed to live there, except for the exceptions. Who are the exceptions? The exceptions are basically composed of two elements, A and B. Number one, the Richie Riches. It was Baron Gunsberg and the, but the Polakovs. I know these names don't mean anything to you today, but they were the Richie Riches of the Jews way back when in, in Russia. Uh, and number two, if you're a ex-GI in the Russian army, you had to stay for 25 years in the army, Nikolai sol soldiers to call him. And if you made it through alive 
and unmaimed and still Jewish, then you could live in St. Petersburg. So these are the two elements that live in the city, uh, which means a very unusual Jewish community. Now, if you're one of these richy riches, you use your uh, pull to get a few, not many, extra Jews in there with you uh, because they might work for you. So in other words, I have this guy come in as a uh, secretary in my business or a clerk in the bank or whatever. But the Russian police are very careful and they wouldn't, usually wouldn't allow that too much. This, then, is the Jewish community of St. Petersburg in 1862. It's very different than Vilna, Kovna, you know, Brist, those kind of places, which were in the Pale Settlement, which in the heart of the Jewish area, and which is Jewish-Jewish. Of course, they also had trouble in the 1860s with the Haskell and all the rest of it, Russification, but a hundred times more so in St. Petersburg. So me, myself, and I, I don't exactly understand why it is that Israel Salanter, back in the 1860s, felt that this super from guy, it's a blazer, who's a Musernik, all the rest of it, would be a good fit for the position of rabbi of the Jewish community in St. Petersburg, because after all, he had zero secular education, and he's very from, and uh, he didn't know Russian so well, uh, probably not at all, but I, I don't know that, and certainly wasn't, let's put it this way, he wasn't no Samson Raphael Hirsch, you know, nothing like that, where he could appeal through eloquent uh, modern speeches to the enlightened members of the community to want to hang on to Judaism. And, you know, it was 25, but he was old school. Uh, but anyway, that's what happened. He obviously figured that of his students, he's the best one he knows for the job. I would also point out that uh, St. Petersburg, since that's where the government's located, so from time to time, the Frum had to go there on special missions to try to lobby the government to try to stop and do some gazera or other, which the government was always coming up with. And, and uh, probably figured like this, if you have a from guy there, so that'll be uh, you know, a place that people can, can, can uh, stop at. If, to, give you an to give you a, a parallel, imagine like in World War II when people used to go to see Roosevelt or Morgenthau. So they said, I guess, who's a from a rabbi in Washington that we can stay by, you know, and here in uh, St. Petersburg is even more difficult because Tsarist Russia, but at least you'll have Rabitzel Blazer and he'll be the Rav. So you end up with a funny situation. The community is not a normal community. The uh, most of them are richy riches, and it's the middle of the 1800s when you had the reign of Tsar Alexander II. And without going through a lot of details, this was the peak years of the assimilation. Okay the peak years of the Haskalah, because they really thought at that time, in the 1860s and 70s, that the future, glorious future lies for the Jews in Russia, if they assimilate in the right degree. Not convert, and not, you know, give up the Judaism altogether, but if they very thoroughly acculturate and become very, very Russianized. And no from person was in a position to oppose this publicly, because you can get trouble with the, with, with the authorities. And so... It must have been very, very difficult for somebody like It's a Blazer to be there. He was there from 1862 to 1879, I think, 78. Yeah, not 20 years, what, 15, uh, 18 years, something like that. And uh, 16 years, I guess. And uh, it was not, was not a good shidduch uh, because he was for, you know, some small town in Lithuania where everybody's still from, or mo for the most part. Here it's the reverse. Uh, so, uh, but nevertheless, that's what happened. Uh, I wouldn't say he had a good time. Uh, it, it, the richy rich people were at that time really into the Haskalah spirit, and they formed societies for spreading enlightenment. There was a famous society like this, Mefitzeh Haskalah, to uh, spread enlightenment and change all the education, the schools from the Cheders to modern schools and Ivrit schools throughout Russia. And he's smack in the middle of it. Of course, he opposed it. But in the end, he couldn't publicly oppose it because the, the, the powerful people in the community were against it. And he had a hard time. But nevertheless, he hung on for all these years. And I imagine we saw Salanta must have told him, you stay there. But I just want you to understand, he wasn't a rove of a city like you usually imagine a rove of a city. He was a, a weirdo compared to that community. Everybody knew he was a and he was a giant Tamil and everybody knew, you know, it comes to learning, whatever. And they also knew if it comes, he was a good speaker of a certain type. He was a good speaker of the old school. Uh, you know, first of all, Yiddish. Second of all, Divrei Torah. 
uh, is a good, very good speaker in that. And, uh, you know, uh, how should I put it? The, you know, public speaking is funny. The, the, the type of speech that works for one audience doesn't necessarily work for the other. So you tell me, who are the younger generations? Who is the children of these rich people? Uh, the young men and the young women uh, from this high society. You think they want to hear a speech based on some advisor from a Gemara somewhere? Uh, you know, uh, and that's going to hit them? Like I said before, you need more like a Sanskrit Hirsch type who was eloquent in the modern sense and could get over the from message using the modern type of language. Uh, and he didn't have that, Vitzel uh, Patzenberger. And so uh, he had, a, it must have been very, very interesting. Now, uh, during that time, first of all, second of all, I would point out, there's nobody to learn with over there. I mean, there must have been some from Jews, but it's not like a Malcolm Toro, which is really remarkable because he put a lot of time into the learning, and that is his famous Sefer that he published, the uh, Shalos and Shubas pre Yitzhak, which is a, a heavy duty lumdus. Uh, and it's really remarkable that something who somebody basically had to learn on his own. Uh, he didn't do this uh, in Vilna or Kovna or, or, like I say, Brisk or Warsaw in these places, but in a Ekveld, you know, in, in, in a desert island from the Torah point of view. And if you ever look at the Shalos uh, Shubas pre Yitzchak, it's, it's uh, uh, pretty impressive. Let's put it this way it's a heavy duty stuff. What's really interesting here. It's if you it's recently republished by the way, a very nice edition. The old I never liked the old edition, but the new edition, which came out like a year ago or something, is really cool. Two big black volumes, and uh, yeah, it's easier to to read. Uh, one of the interesting things he goes into is, uh, what do you do in these very northern type of climates? When do you when do you daven? When is a shema and all the rest of it? Because it's really a bummer. You know these places. Shabbos is over Saturday night. What uh, you know midnight or I don't know. Half the year, it's a, the, the sun never rises. The other half of the year, the sun never sets. So this is not what the Gemara had in mind, and you have to work all this out. And I believe, even today, they use that safer for uh, trying uh, as, as, as uh, trying to calculate all these uh, what to do if you live in these very northern climates. Fortunately, neither you and I live like a place in Alaska or something like that. But that's you know, St. Petersburg is way up uh, up there in, the, in, in such places. I think this is why the Lubavitch Dobbins a ten. I think. People don't realize, you know, when you live in Northern Europe, Lithuania, North of that, you couldn't daven, you know, till, uh, you know, nine in the morning or whatever, a lot of times in the year. I mean, you literally, you know, until then it was dark. And uh, we forget this because we live in relatively normal climates, but they did not. But on the other hand, he has a lot of other shilas in there and a lot of lumbus too. It's, you know, in, uh, many times in Lithuania, uh, shilas and chubas, it's not really Shalos and Shubas. Somebody asked him a question with the Gemara or Tosins or whatever, and uh, it's not from a real-life case. But he has plenty of real-life cases also, and I remember he has a lot of Gittin questions. Uh, and uh, it's very famous, by the way, that he had a terrible situation with the Gittin and places like that because a lot of people converted in the 1860s and 70s to get ahead. Uh, these were the peak years of Jews converting to Christian for Parnassal purposes, for careerist purposes. Uh, matter of fact, St. Petersburg was notorious for a very large number of mumrim, and that's not something that makes a rabbi happy, you know, to see all these people that switch religions, and they all switch religions for careerist purposes. There was a great, there's a great book out there. I wonder if I have it, maybe I have it somewhere. Is it called Mumrim? I think so. Uh, from Citron, Shmuley Citron. It was a famous Hebrew writer once upon a time. It's really fascinating Either I have it or I read it once from Hebrew College long ago. And he writes all these stories about exactly what I'm talking about. These weirdo mumars, these weirdo Jews, some of whom, I mean, let's put it this way, a lot of guys who converted to Christianity for purposes, they're actually Shiva guys. They know how to learn very well. Some were from a Hasidic background. Uh, you know, yesterday they had payas and then tomorrow they're in church. It's, it's really weird. And they had like secret satyrs. <laughs> this is something like a New York today, you know. The secret satyrs on Pesach night where all the people would be in somebody's fancy apartment. They're all Christians now, but for a nostalgia purpose, they're keeping Seder. But that doesn't mean they're good Jews. They're just weirdos. And uh, you end up with uh, a lot of uh, broken families because the husband would convert and the wife didn't want to convert and they have to arrange a get. And I've heard all kind of mice. I don't know if they're true. You know, you had to do the get in the church, but maybe it's not true. All I'm saying is 
don't think the Rebitzel Pettenberger, oh, he's a rov, like, like you say, like it's Rebitzel Kohana with the Kovner rov, and Rebitzel Blaser was a Pettenberger rov. Big difference. Kovner was a Jewish community. Petersburg was a weirdo community from the Judaic point of view. And I don't know why he hung, he hung along so long there. I can only surmise that we saw Salanter, who he followed like a Rebbe, you know, whatever he told him to do. And he told him to, to hang on and to, uh, and anybody else other than him will be much worse. In the, not only did he have a problem along the lines I just described, but in Jewish literature, if you're a devotee of modern Hebrew literature, which I'm sure you're not, uh, especially the Haskalah in 19th century, uh, he plays a, a prominent role simply because some of the big maskilim, among the greatest writers of the Haskalah, were in St. Petersburg, especially Yelag Yehudalib Gordon, who I think I've talked about before, but was a, a very famous Litvak uh, maskil and probably the greatest Hebrew writer of the 19th century, probably. But boy, did he have a poison pen. He can really stick it to the form like nobody can. Oh, my Lord. And he was a genius in writing and poetry. And they're both in St. Petersburg at the same time. And uh, I'll just tell you one story. You know, you know where you get this stuff? Uh, if you want to know the stories, after all, true. But probably, the ones I'm speaking about probably are true. You get him in the Zichronus of Rabbi Maza, who was the chief rabbi of Moscow, and wrote these four brilliant volumes of memoirs. And he has a of uh, uh, Blazer. And also in Gedolim von Unter from uh, Jakob Mark, who also knew him, knew him personally, and they have all these, uh, uh, you know, bad uh, uh, stories of woe from the time that uh, Bissell Petterberg was in Petersburg. And uh, a very famous, I'll just give you one example. You know, I, I, as far as I know, the story is true. I wasn't there, but I, I believe this one is true. And it gives you a temper of the times. We're talking about like the 1870s, I guess. And as I say before, the Haskalah was in full swing. And so was the, the, the uh, assimilationist pushed by the Richie Riches. And the guy who was like the owner of the whole community, Baron Gunsberg, Baron Gunsberg, meaning he was a baron, uh, a nobleman, uh, not by the Russian government, God forbid, but by one of the German states. He bought it. You know what I mean? He bought it, the title. But uh, he was a millionaire. And he's the most important guy in the community. Half the people in the community work for him or something like that. And he got the idea of the Shavuos. It's a very famous story, Shavuos. And he said, this was, you know, the rich are nuts, correct? The rich are nuts. Whatever comes to their mind, they're going to do. And he said that all the Mishabeirachs and Mishanodars uh, that they're going to have on Shavuos for the different aliyahs should be going for the Mephitse uh, Haskalah, the society to uh, diffuse the Haskalah among the Jewish population, meaning that they should get rid of the yeshivas and the cheders and replace them with with uh, modern schools and who knows what. <laughs> so so basically, if you get Shlichi or a V, you know, and you give a Misha Nadar, uh, a Misha Beirach, and you promise money, that money will go for this and this cause, which is the opposite of what a firm person would want the cause to go, but who cares? He's the rich guy, he owns everything, and that's what he had an idea. I'm not finished. And he said that all the shoals, huh? I don't know how many shoals or steeples there were at that time, St. Petersburg, couldn't have been many. So uh, in order that nobody should back out of it, so he said like this. Now listen to this. In Shul, he's going to have a rep- one of his representatives, in other words, a Jewish guy, a flunky, working for Baron Gunsberg, who considers him a good Jew. And he'll be there at the Bima when the guy has the Aliyah. I'm not finished. And then with him will be a guy, a Russian. And let's say, for example, you get Shlishi. And let's say you say, Babusha, Shayitain, $100, 100 rubles for the Aliyah. So the guy will write down, because he's not Jewish, the guy will write down the amount, and that way they'll know to hit you with a bill after Yontif. <laughs> so you have a Jew and a guy standing on the, on the bimah, uh, you know, keeping track of what you said, and then writing it down, and probably giving you a receipt or something like this. First of all, you're not allowed to do it, obviously. You can't tell a guy to go right for you on, on, on Yontif, whatever, leaving that aside. Uh, the whole thing is disgusting. So, on the other hand, the guy said to do it. So, who does he send to the shoal? Now, the rich, fancy shoal, that's not where Ritzel Petterberg chose to daven. He wouldn't like to be there, and they wouldn't like him to be there. He had like his own uh, minion, you know, steeple, as we say today. Uh, what is the job of a robin for somebody like him? 
take care of the kashras, you know, the getin, you know, things like that. And then the rest of it, get out of my hair, you know, don't don't interfere in my life. If I want to go to the movies, if I want to have a ball in my house, you know, banquet, you just stay away. So anyway, they came to Heshol on Shul. It's a very famous story. And Yalag, Yehuda Leib Gordon, the famous poet, who happened to be an employee of the Baron Gunsberg, and he was a secretary of the Jewish community, actually, he had a, he had a job. And a you know, very famous, as I say, writer. And he came with the guy, and it was Petterberg, like, what's he supposed to do? He doesn't like this idea. And, uh, you know, he felt very bad about it. And uh, at that time, uh, now, I want you to listen to what I'm about to tell you. At that time, the Rav, Rebitzela, uh had a reputation for being, uh, him and his wife being smart financially. Uh, now, the reason is simple. Uh, she came for money. I don't know how much money came at the wedding, but he came for money. And they were childless. So they had no kids. So he got a decent salary. You know, that they negotiated from day one. Uh, money is not really such a problem for the Jewish community of St. Petersburg. And uh, they didn't have any children. They didn't have no expenses. So they invested all the money. You understand? No, he knew what to do with money. And they bought a real estate in Kovna. There is nothing wrong with what I just said. Right? It's possible for somebody who to be a rabbi, I don't know, in Baltimore, and go invest in, in, in real estate in Florida. That, that's, that's legal. You know, they would show that the person is astute. You know, he's a good investor. There's nothing illegal or dishonest about it. So uh, it was known that uh, Bitsula Blazer and his wife, they bought a, a, a nice piece of real estate and, and, and bought up houses. I don't know what they bought in the Covenant area. But on the other hand, these are Jews we're talking about. If people complained that Moshe Rabbeinu was stealing, how do I know that? Because Moshe had to tell Korach, lo chamor mehem, echad mehem nasasi, you know. So, uh, they're sure going to plant, any rabbi has money, that's against the law, you know, rabbi's supposed to be poor. And so, uh, they all were saying like this, he stole the money, he stole the tzedakah money, he robbed people, all the rest of it. That's all baloney, obviously. But I'm just saying, Jews believe this kind of stuff, because that's who we are. It's Allah Shahar, we're, we're the race of Allah Shahar. And, therefore, uh, the famous story is that it's Shua's morning and Yalag came in with the guy and it's time for the laning and the Rav is like very um, uncomfortable as you can imagine and he said uh, you know don't do this and they said we're going to do it anyway and then he started doing Akdamas Akdamas means whatever it is everything ends in saw and so Yalag starts saying, You know, that he's a lot, he's, he's, he's a suspe- suspect of stealing money. He went on to, in other words, Yalag made up his own Akhtamas, which was brilliant, but it's all stucking the Rav as a, he's a crook and he's a, embezzling money. Uh, so you can just imagine what Agmas Nefesh is to, a, to, to somebody like him. But what could he do? He was helpless. And the Rabbi told him to stay there. Now, by the way, what's the end of this? A few years later, he quit, as we'll see, and Gordon said, I won. But then some of the friends of Abitzel Blaser who couldn't stand what Gordon had done, a year later, this is Russia. They informed the government that he's a revolutionary, <laughs> and uh, which was baloney. But nevertheless, they said Gordon is, 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 is a communist, a revolutionary. And this is Russia, so he was arrested and sent to, uh, it wasn't Siberia, but something like Karelia, you know, someplace like that. And he suffered a lot before he got out, and when he got out, the community wouldn't give him a job again. In other words, I messed you over, but you messed me over also. This is how Jewish life, unfortunately, with the Lashaharis and the Malshinas, used to be in Russia. It's the ugly side of, of things. Now, I told you that he called the book, the Sefer he published, which he published in the 1870s, Pre-Yitzchak, The Fruits of Isaac, Pre-Yitzchak. See, he didn't have any kids. So what he said is, that this Sefer will be my child. Very sad, right? Very sad. Uh, there, there's a whole genre of Sfarim that are like that. I remember, for example, off the top of my head, the famous Rabbi Shmuel Kohn of Padua in, in Italy in the 1700s, he called his, his shoe as Zara Emes, for the same reason that he didn't have kids. So, uh, uh, look, he's a Musunik, so he said, this is the way it is, this is the way it is. No, 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 listen to this. Now comes really something quite remarkable. His wife, that they were married 35 years, he got married when he was 15, and now we're dealing with 1877 or something, you know, something like that. His wife told him, he said, you know, uh, 
you should get remarried. And he said, no, I don't want to get married. We've been together 35 years. And she said, I know how much it hurts you, and so forth, not to have children. And I think the problem is me, and I think you should get remarried. And she pushed him, and she got divorced. Can you believe it? This is a story that'll be a movie. His own wife told him, she said, she divorced me and married somebody else. And that's, in the end, after a certain while, they argued and so forth, he did do it. And he did remarry somebody, and they had two kids. But he stayed on good terms with the first wife, and he supported her for the rest of his life. He used to send her a check every month. Uh, I don't know if she needed it, but he'd send a check every month. And she uh, always wrote back uh, a receipt, and, she, and, and full of Shavach uh, uh, praises. No, she only spoke good about him. You know, that's, that's, like I said before, that's a novel, that's a movie, that kind of relationship. I don't even know what to do with it. Uh, if it would have been in biblical times, he'd have two wives, you know, like Abraham and, and Hagar and, and, and all that. But this is how it worked out. So he, he got divorced from the first wife at her, uh, you know, request or whatever, and he got remarried. He, he was 50. I don't know how old his second wife was. Well, she obviously was younger. But, I mean, he didn't marry no girl 20, you know. It wasn't like that. And uh, and they had two kids. And he, I think this is probably why, in this context, you know, he, uh, he moved uh, to, uh, he left St. Petersburg. I don't have the, I know he left in the late 1870s. I don't know the year that he, got married, but I think it's around the same time. That's my understanding. And he uh, didn't want to be there anyway, so he uh, vacated St. Petersburg, spent the rest of his life away from there. So they call him Rabitzel Petersburg, but most of his life he wasn't in St. Petersburg. It was just a nickname. And when he came back, um, one second, so when he came back to Kovna, uh, to Kovna, which he had been before, where he spent most of, most of the rest of his life, so it's like a new life. I mean, you know, it's the second wife, and he and he, and he started having. He had two kids, and the second wife also uh, was well to do. It's interesting. Uh, he made two strategic marriages, you might say, from the financial point of view. And uh, how was the second wife? Remember, he had money from the from the first marriage, and I don't mean money from his uh, wife's dowry. I mean money that they invested in uh, in real estate and, and businesses and things like that. So he clearly was a person who understood money. Uh, hi, I'm back. I had to go get a carpool. First things first. Uh, where did I leave off? I think we're talking about uh, Mr. Lepentenberger when he had to leave from St. Petersburg and move to uh, Kovna, which is where he spent most of the rest of his life. So here's, here's somebody who died at the age of 70, and he leaves when he's around 50. So figured out, and he goes to Israel last four or five years of his life. So, you know, 15, next 15, 16, 17 years. And these are the ones that made him famous, the most consequential, I would say. Otherwise, I wouldn't be talking about him. If uh, his life had ended when it did in 1877 in St. Petersburg, he would be a famous rabbi of Rothschilds and Jews and Lomdus, and that's fine too. But he became a lot more than that, very controversial, very interesting and an important figure, especially in the history of Orthodox Judaism. You see, Rizal Salantra, as I was saying before, knew that he knew how to handle money. Rizal Salantra did not know how to handle money. Let's get that straight. All of his life, he didn't know his way around the dollar bill, and elders had to support him. I mean, that's that's an interesting aspect for Rizal Salantra, and he always had people that were happy to do it. But uh, Rizal Petterberg did, and uh, as I say before, you know, he got married now. It's a, you know, in those days, a rabbi didn't get divorced and didn't get remarried to a younger woman and all that. That's a good reason to leave St. Petersburg right then and there. I know there are these accounts that give other reasons, but I, th I think that's the reason. Anyway, Israel Saranda found him a, a very interesting job, a complete a change of uh, description, and an ultra-modern job within the from world. And I'll tell you what I mean. He, Israel Saranda made Yitzhak Blaser the menahel of the kolel that Israel Saranda had just founded. Uh, this this is a long business. Really, I, this takes another hour and a half. I don't have that much time, but I'm going longer than usual simply because the subject demands a little bit of a longer treatment. I'm going to try to restrain myself, limit myself as much as possible. Because I know you don't know this thing. Michel Salante is an unusual person. And 
he saw the whole generation crashing, which is true. The young people in the masses left Yiddishkeit, or at least Orthodox Judaism. And whereas others just shrugged their shoulders and say, let's, you know, hold on to whatever we can. Shoslanta was a more uh, thoughtful, religious person, and he tried to come up with schemes to reverse the tide of assimilation or moving out of Yiddishkeit. He, I'll put it in simple language. He tried to affect the tide that was going to the left. But nothing seemed to work, he, or he couldn't get any backing for it. I think I mentioned this a month ago or two months ago when I talked with Israel Salanta. So you go back and listen if you want to learn something. Because he was looking, thinking about making a Steinsaltz, or then an art scroll, or then even a Sansino, and other ideas along these lines, which the Frum didn't want and the and non Frum didn't want. He's a very interesting person. Uh, I think, from my perspective, he had the insight that a very important thing in the modern era is to, <laughs> I use the language that I use, you know, get books with Nikudos. Now, I don't mean that specifically, but I'm saying do things that make the gap between the potential reader and the text uh, less difficult. So that's what the art scroll is, basically, if you think about it. And um, Kahati, and all those sorts of things. It's not a matter of dumbing down, it's making it easier for the person to connect to the Torah texts. Without that, it's impossible. You can't expect people to come from and start learning Kutsos. It just doesn't work that way. Except for a tiny, tiny, tiny handful. If you want anything larger than that, you have to come up with intermediary uh, kinds of uh, instruments. So none of those ideas worked. And then in the end, we saw Salanter tried A, B, C, D, F, and G, and he came up with the idea of a kolel, which he thought, not exactly the kolel like we have it today, but something along the lines that even people, once they get married, should sit and learn for a couple of years and, and get paid. And then hopefully they'll train to be rabbis like Isaac Four of communities. And this was part of his dream obsession, you might say, to get from... Uh, Yerushalayim type guys into the rabbinical positions to prevent the Chovei guys or the Maskin from getting it. That's what the what they call the Kovna Kolel was. Excuse me, Yerushalayim found a rich guy who would kick in some money. A Lithuanian Jew lived in Berlin and he started this Kovna Kolel but he wasn't there. He lived in Germany. And so he said to Yitzhak Blasa, you take over as the Menahel. This is a brand new post, my friends. What is a kolel? It's a brand new idea. And that's a little bit of a play of the old clays, but nevertheless, in its modern form, it's a brand new idea. And what's the menahel of a kolel? This is a job description for a job that never existed before. So that means if you were one of these guys that got into that kolel, which means you got a certain stipend to learn, I think, five years and then go out to be Ravonim or something like that. So um, the head guy overall is Michel Salanta, but he's never there. He was a Galadar, so, you know, that's a great person to have at the head of your institution, but he's never there. And so the person who's going to be there, who's going to run affairs, see how I'm, I'm hesitating, you know, is he an administrative side, is he the, the Ruchni side, is he the sh- giving the shear? That whole business he put in the laps of Yitzhak Blaser. And Yitzhak Blaser took it, and he was able to handle the administrative side quite well. Like I said before, he knew how to raise money, he knew, and he knew how to make a budget and handle money. You have to understand, the Kovna Kolel raised a, a fair amount of money. I mean, uh, I read somewhere 100,000 rubles. That's hard to believe, but it could be. And, uh, you know, he knew how to do all that sort of thing. As far as the learning, so he was able to see, bro. I mean, he, he could have been a major Rosh Hashim, but if you read the Sefer, I mean, you know. So, uh, you know, he knew how to, how to supervise the learning. But being that he's a Talmud, he also wanted to use it to spread Musr. The idea is to give Musr Shmuzin, so... Because uh, he saw, and quite correctly, that you can have a lot of careerist types, that they'll be very good in learning, but once they uh, go out and become rabbis, they'll be left-wingers because the, the, they were just looking to have a successful Gashmizdika career in the Rabbonus, and that would be bad news. And so what you want is somebody should have, after five years of learning his call, your year Shemayim. And he thought the way to do that is through what they call Musser uh, curriculum. Now comes the tricky part, Okay. And this you have to pay attention because it requires a little bit of thoughtfulness. Musser is a funny business. And there's all the difference between Musser A and Musser B. Musser A goes like this. Me, myself, and I. Me. I decide on my own. At one point, I want to learn Musil Sharm, Shari Teshuvah, Sadiq. I want to increase my year of Shemayim or something like that. I want to have a relationship with God. Whatever language you want to want. It's an autonomous choice that I made. 
And so whereas previously I never paid attention to those kind of books, now I could be 20, I could be 30, I could be 40, 50, 60. Now at a turn point in life, I decide, me, myself, and I, that that's what I want to get into. And each one finds the derech that works for them. And as a result of learning Masils from these other things, you become more sensitized, right? More sensitized to uh, more sensitized to the Ruchnius. Uh, if you're a Litvak, it's more sensitized to the presence of the Sahara and the need to fight against it, and things like that. Nobody in the world has any problem with what I just said. On the contrary, that's what every Jew should do. You try to improve the quality of your religious life. No question about it. This is not controversial. Now I'm going to take, now I'm talking about Musa B. Musa B like this. I take a bunch of students and I Musarize them. I tell you how to become from, and I tell you what books to read, and I tell you how you should feel Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and all the other times. And I do so not in the context of a free and voluntary type situation, but because you're now students in my institution, my yeshiva, whatever it is, and I control you to one degree or another. So I'm forcing it on you. That's a different story. That's a different story. Some may take to that positively. Some would take to that negatively. And that's what happened, right, in the 1880s, 1890s. This we call the Muslim controversy, right? Take, for example, Ritzik Blaser, who was a great man, without question. He took over this kolel, and uh, as far as the uh, non-Muslim parts, no problem. Then he started giving Muslim schmoozing, no problem. You want to come? You come. You don't want to come? You don't come. You find his, his uh, uh, schmooze a turn on, great. You find it a turn off, oh, it's, it's up to you, you know. Not everybody... You know, it works with Shadukim. Not everybody's the Masugal for the right uh, a partner. You know, it could be that, you know, you hear from this person, it makes a Russian when you hear from somebody else, not. Okay. But then he tried to pressure, because this is a natural thing, since he's so convinced that Musa is the way to go, and who can deny that, since he's so convinced that in this day and age, people that Musa end up being not from, and you can make a very good case for that. So he's trying to make the pressure. So then it becomes... Uh, controlling. For example, you have to come to the schmooze. Or those who come and play ball get a bigger stipend than those who do not. Uh-oh. Once you start making these kind of, of uh, distinctions, basically you're encouraging hypocrisy. You're encouraging Jesuitism. Because the guy says, I'll kiss up to him to get more money. You understand? Then it gets to the worst level. He didn't do this, but this is what developed later in Musa Yeshiva. And I can explain it all in a single word, and most of my listeners right now will know exactly what I'm talking about. Knas. What is that? What the heck is that? You came late for dubbing? I'll give you a knas. You didn't learn the Musa Seder? I'll give you a knas. This is a knas. A, 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 a financial penalty. What is that? You know, what is that? So you say, well, it's a necessary control measure. What is this, a police state? Do you hear what I'm saying? So what happened to the Musa? Trying to teach you what to do? I'm using force. So some people can say, very appropriate. The Jewish religion is a religion of coercion, and that is true. You look in the Chumash, it's not about volunteers, it's about coercion. Agreed. But on the other hand, it doesn't play so well, particularly in the modern era. We live in the last two centuries in which freedom is a big deal. Autonomy is a big deal. And so if you just simply say, you're coming to my yeshiva, it's a dictatorship. It's a police state. And if you don't follow the rules here, you don't follow the rules there, then you'll be punished and canast, and the other guy won't. And then you know how it goes. Once you set up a large institution, the rich kid won't get canast. The kid with the, with, with, with the uh, protects, he won't get canast. The other guy will get canast. And makes a big bitterness. This is what happened in the 1880s and 1890s and the first half of the 20th century in the Lithuanian Yeshiva world, where they developed the institution of... of and, and by the way, he had this problem because a lot of guys in the cold were turned off. Some were turned on. And the ones who were turned off started complaining they went to the Kovnerov, who wasn't the head of the Kolel. He was the titular head of the Kolel. But nevertheless, he was a Godelador. And they said, what is this business? They're, they're, they're taking away by, you know, my stipend, and they're punishing me this way, and they're rewarding the other guy that way. And Rizal Khan didn't like this, you see. And uh, others didn't like it. And uh, like I said before, you try to use, uh, you know, pressure. Uh, they didn't like that kind of business. This morphed into... And I'm telling you my opinion. That's all I can tell you, the way I understand all the sources. I don't think most people have read most of the sources. Just here, here, and there. 
This led into the development of an ideology, which is, what do you mean you have to have a Musr Seder? What's wrong with just learning Gemara? This is the basic story to tell you, but I think it's mainly the control freak business that I just mentioned before. And Yusuf Salanter died in 82, I think, so about three years after Yusuf Blazer took over, Yusuf Salanter passed away. And once he passed away, Hutter or Tzua, you know, when he was alive, people were afraid to criticize anything about the Muslim movement because he was such a big guttle on the side. But once he's gone, now the coast is clear, and they little by little developed uh, a strong anti-Musserist movement, and this is all described in the book Pulmus HaMusser by Dove Katz. Dove Katz was a, a no relation to me. He wrote that five-volume business called Tnuas HaMusser. Dove Katz and Ritzel Petterberg, I think between the two of them, they created this myth of a Muslim movement. I don't mean the myth that it didn't happen, because it did, but in the fact it's a movement, and they call it a very specific phenomenon, uh, this is a literary creation. You understand? It's a literary creation. But nevertheless, um, it happened in one form or another. And Vitzel Pedro, the next thing you know, became like a controversial figure uh, because he's the head of the Musarists. Now, to be fair, he was a big Sadiq and say so he didn't answer back. But uh, and anyway, people like him, you're dealing with a different Madriga. He's one of the first people who started this Tynus Dibur business. Just imagine what I'm talking about. Don't say a word for 40 days and 40 nights, from Elul, beginning of Elul, to Yom Kippur. You try it. <laughs> you try to keep your mouth shut for 11 minutes, you know. Uh, and I'm sure in their mind, this must be what Claudius Yisrael did way back in the time of Moses, when they were waiting that last 30, 40 days to get the second tablets. You know, and they said they, they were all downstairs, probably was a tiny dibber, the way they see it, you know. Because that's all you need. They're at the bottom of the Mount Sinai, Moses up there, and they're talking Lashonara, you don't want to go there. So probably a, a silence in the camp. Uh, he was a big Tzaddik. Uh On the other hand, I'll say it again. He uh, uh, he lived in a mansion or a very nice home. His wife ran a successful hotel. They say he helped there once in a while. I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe yeah, maybe no. But there's nothing dishonorable with the hotel business. Uh, if you go by Yaakov Mark and the Gedolim Funtzit site, they had a what do you go spick and span floor and. A number of rabbis slipped on the very uh, shiny uh, floor when they walked in. It was so well uh, kept. And so uh, it was a bourgeois lifestyle. But on the other hand, not really. Because, uh, you know, he's, first of all, he's learning. And second of all, is that, you know, the, his boat is, you know, the musr, the, the thinking about God and about the self uh, is a major element of his life. Even though now he had two kids, he had a son and a daughter from the second marriage. So it's just an interesting, must have been a very interesting household growing up in the 1880s, 1890s, uh, that somebody in his 50s has two little kids running around, not grandchildren, but children, and he's holding in the Olamus, but also not. And he's trying to run the Kolel until it didn't work out, and he had to give it up. And, uh, but like I said before, independently wealthy he was. See, he could spend the rest of his years in Lithuania going around from place to place and trying to push Musser. He, he developed into a very good speaker. Uh, remember, this is not St. Petersburg. You don't have to speak in Russian. You don't have to quote Shakespeare or Lermontov. You can talk to, uh, you know, Heimish. And so uh, Daddy was a king yet. And, uh, you know, he went to a lot of the... Well, we really went from town to town and place to place. He tried to get into Volozhin. And these are the stories you hear. And Rokhaim Briska said, we don't need this. And you can... that That's the kind of thing you can look up on your own. You know, he says it's a, it's a, it's a medicine. Rokhaim Briska said, we're not sick. And, you know, and then he said, oh, the, the, somebody says he's not sick, that's the biggest sign he's sick, you know, because uh, the way the conversation is supposed to have gone is, you, you say the Torah is enough, what if you, uh, you know, had heart trouble, what if you hurt yourself, you go to a doctor, you don't say the learning is enough, so when you have neshama trouble, you can't say the learning is enough, but, you know, these, these are, uh, I don't know if they're true or not, uh, it might be, uh, and this became what was called the Muslim controversy, Mr. Uh, Blazer Ended up, um, I, like I say, I'm almost going an hour here, which I never do, and I could go another two hours easy on this kind of subject. Everybody likes Lush and Heart, you know. Uh, but by the time this morphs into uh, something practical, it turns into Slobodka Yeshiva. But even there, there was a fight in the Slobodka, because he and the altar of Slobodka started the, the Slobodka Yeshiva. You see, here we're talking about the creation of a new model, which lasted for a while but not in our time today. It's, it's like an episode. The Musa is an episode. It came and it went. According to this model, the main person is the Mashkiach. Think, for example, 
of Slobodka. Uh, the way Mitzel Petterberg and mainly Nelson Sri Finkel, the Alter Slobodka made it. Who's that guy there? The Rosh Hashiva or the Mashkiach? The answer is the Mashkiach, right? Uh, who hired who? Did the Rosh Hashivas and Slobodka hire the Mashkiach or the other way around? The Alter Slobodka is the one who hired the, 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 the Magashirs. Now, this is not the case in the Yeshiva world today. Like it's going back to like, a, like it used to be. But I'm just telling you, it's very interesting the way these models uh, develop. And, uh, of course, by this time he was in his 50s, 60s. Uh, there are many accounts you can read. You know, you want to read a good account? Uh, you see about Ritzel Petterberger? I'm just throwing these sources out so you don't have to just listen to me. You can go see it yourself if you're inclined. The uh, 3D... For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.